How's everybody doing? All right, that was okay. That was decent, uh, the response. But let me ask again, how's everybody doing? All right, all right. Really excited to continue our sermon series, Recovering Discipleship. If you've been with us, you know that we've been taking a look at a really amazing passage of scripture in the book of Acts chapter 2 that gives us this powerful glimpse into the life of the first followers of Jesus. It, in fact, it's the only place, um, the book of Acts there and a few other passages that give these powerful summary statements that kind of pull the curtains back and let us look at what did the first followers of Jesus, how did they do this? How did they actually follow him? And why we titled this series Recovering Discipleship is because we've been wrestling with the idea that if you take the first followers of Jesus and stand them side by side with followers of Jesus in New York City, 2022, and compare what might be missing, what might be some things that were prevalent and key distinguishing factors in the first followers of Jesus that are not showing up today, and if there are some things that we recognize, we're, we're inviting us as a community to pray and ask God to help us recover whatever might be lost. But the other thing that we've been talking about is that if we honestly assess the last two plus years, we have all collectively experienced such a disruption in life, such an amazing, traumatic, full two plus years, and many of us, if we look at our own following of Jesus, there's probably some things that have been lost. Some things that we used to do intentionally to, to cultivate intimacy with Jesus and community that now we look and say, where are those things that used to be a part of my life? And so we're praying as a church now, asking God to help us recover any of those things that were lost from the first followers of Jesus to any of those things that were lost in our own journey with Jesus. And so with that thought in mind, we're going to go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to gather with your people, Lord, to celebrate the reality that you are risen, that you are alive. And Lord, we pray as we come to your word, we ask that you would open up our hearts, our minds, help us to understand what you're saying to us. Holy Spirit, glorify Jesus. Reveal him to each and every one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. As we begin, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this because I think it might cause some unintentional division in the church. However, we need to dive into sticky, difficult terrain if we're going to be true and authentic. So here we go. 
How many Yankee fans do we have in this room? Raise your hand. You see, there's, oh, there's some bold people. Applaud them. They're, 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 that, that takes courage. Um, because how many Mets fans do we have in the room? All right, you see? You're in the right borough um, for, that, for that affinity. Um, let's go. Let's, all right, we took a f first step. Let's go a bit deeper. Um, Shake Shack versus In-N-Out. Who says Shake Shack? Who says In-N-Out? It's a bold yet vocal minority for In-N-Out. You saw that, right? It's like, I could go down the list of things that we have varied opinions on, and we have deeply personal things. Have you ever noticed how many versions of the goat conversation exists? You say, what? People talking about goats? It stands for greatest of all time. That conversation rages in everything from sports to business to leadership to all sorts of, we're constantly trying to assess and determine and communicate our convictions around why this should be first and this is better. So much so that apps like Yelp or even Amazon reviews, why we find them useful is because they capture something that we intuitively understand but don't always put language to, which is whenever you find people that have diverse, divergent opinions agreeing on something, that's something to take notice of. And so all of a sudden, everybody with all these diverse opinions saying that this place is good or this product is good or this destination, we perk up because we know it's not a common moment when people with highly subjective personal interpretations and opinions of things come to a place of an agreement and have a collective consensus. And yet, when we look at Acts chapter 2, it says something. It's a very quick phrase, but it says something that if we pause and really look at it, it's saying something quite profound. In verse 43, it says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. It tells us that this entire community of followers of Jesus, as diverse and complex as that is, with all these subjective personal experiences and viewpoints, that there was a thread that ran through this community that caused them to have a consensus, a collective experience of all of them being filled with a sense of awe over the things that they were seeing God do through the apostles. Now, I realize for some of us, when we talk about awe or a sense of wonder, to be astonished, to be kind of gripped at that visceral, emotional, soul level and when we talk about that within the context of faith, for some of us, that feels squishy. That feels a bit, that feels subjective. That's like, no, please talk about faith in very rationalistic, naturalistic terms and predictable things and categories that don't require us to stretch and use those muscles that are most used when we contemplate mysterious things things that are beyond our categories, things that are bigger than us, things that remind us of our smallness. 
I remember reading a story of Teddy Roosevelt where at night he would go out of his, out of his house and he would sometimes have people accompany him. He was one of our presidents and he would look up at the stars and he would count all the stars he saw. He would name the planets in terms of where he understood their vicinity and where they were from, where they were at rather. And he would do that long enough until he said, I'm thoroughly reminded of my smallness. And then he would go home. This idea of being filled with awe is not a foreign concept to our faith. It's not some modern feely thing that we're doing today that has not been done before. In fact, throughout the history of our faith, from Genesis all the way forward, if you study how God interacted with his people, you find these powerful moments that let us know that being in a state of awe toward God has been part of the fabric of our faith from the very beginning. That it's an appropriate thing to be, to be found in this state of awe. That you and I are not just serving a God who we mentally assent to ideas about him. We're not just serving a God that we agree to principles and, and categories that are comfortable for our small minds to wrap around. We serve a God that's mysterious, that's big, that surprises us, that's unexpected, that does things that no one else can. And when we are found in the presence of those things that he does, our hearts are found in a state of awe, of wonder. And so again, this is not new, actually. I want to take a look at two passages in the Old Testament that really are powerful moments that just give you two evidences. I could give you so many other moments that you'll see that this idea of people that serve God being in a state of awe is not new. It's actually an ancient idea. Exodus 33, verse 7 and onward, it says this, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face. As one speaks to a friend, then Moses would return to the camp. But his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. I wish we had more time to unpack this verse, but it's important to know some big ideas around this. This is a moment where the children of Israel have been freed from Egypt. Slavery under the Egyptian empire. And they were set to take a journey toward the promised land. God promised them their own land where they could practice 
their life of covenantal relationship with God and they could set up a way of life that would be a shining example to the whole world. And yet we read and understand that a journey that should have taken a few weeks took over 40 years. Have you ever been on the Van Wyck Expressway? And you realize this should not be taking that long. This is not that long of a distance. If you ever need evidence for the reality and existence of sin, New York City traffic, that's it. That's the greatest apologetic. It's like, I know sin to be real because traffic is real. A journey that should have taken a few weeks takes years because of their sin, their disobedience, their stubbornness. But at this moment, they're living this very nomadic life. They're living in tents in the wilderness. And their rhythm was they were following a cloud by day that was the presence of God. And at night, a pillar of fire would show up. And they would follow the cloud or the fire until it stopped. And wherever it stopped, they pitched their tent and said, I guess we're stopping here. And at the moment it moved, they would get up and move. Sometimes the cloud would stop a day. Sometimes it would stop or, or move way quicker. And they're living this life of following God's presence toward the promised land. And we read that every time Moses would go into a special tent that he pitched outside the camp, you have to understand, the, this was not some small encampment. There are hundreds of thousands of people in this encampment. And actually, if you study their formation, it's a very interesting thing. The way the tribes were formed, it looks like a cross in the wilderness. And they were there waiting to see if God was going to move them or if they were going to stay on their way to the promised land. And then Moses, every now and then, would go to the tent of meeting. And that was where anyone who needed to inquire of the Lord would go to that tent and seek God. And it says when Moses would go, a pillar of cloud would come. And all of Israel would stand up, pause what they were doing, and watch as God spoke to Moses. You imagine. Hundreds of thousands of people stopping what they were doing to witness the living God speak to Moses. And they would worship. I think the closest experience I've ever seen in a non-religious setting was when I went and did a mission trip to Madrid, Spain. And soccer came on. And I witnessed the whole country shut down. For a couple hours, no traffic, nobody walking in the street. I'm an American. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was like, what's happening? Are we good? <laughs> Everything good? It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. A whole people pausing. This was the entertainment. This was the thrill. This is what captured them. Imagine, hey, what are you going to do today? Probably some farming, take care of the kids. Also, just paying attention. If Moses goes to pray, I'm going to stop. I'm going to watch. As God's presence comes, they were captured in this state of awe and reverence. 
And it says Moses, God spoke to Moses face to face. In the original language, it means cheek to cheek. Talking to God that closely. Just the very concept of that is amazing. But it doesn't just stop there. There's another passage, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 11 to 14. This is a moment where Solomon is dedicating a temple that he's built for God's people to worship and to sacrifice there. And this is a grand celebration. Look at what it says. The priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, uh, Haman, um, Judathan, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. If you've ever wondered, why do these strange Christians gather and play instruments and sing songs when they gather together? That's not arbitrary. That's not because we have like some really energetic musicians and we had to find something for them to do, you know? It, this has been part of the fabric of the people of God in relationship with God. We gather to worship. And when our voices are insufficient, we add instruments to it. And at this moment, the temple is being dedicated. This physical space is being consecrated, saying this is a place where communion with God will happen and in the midst of this dedication, we read that there's a moment in this praise and worship environment where the glory of the Lord fills the temple. So much so that people couldn't function. They couldn't carry out their responsibilities. Have you ever seen something that was so remarkable that it like interrupted your ability to speak? where you were at a loss for words, the very beauty of it, the wonder of it. If you talk to my wife, the first time she saw me, she describes it. In <laughs> I remember the first time I was in the delivery room and saw my kids born. That is an awesome moment. It always makes me wonder, how are women so mistreated in our world when women can do the most amazing things? And aside from childbirth, women are just incredible. They do some awesome things. I heard somebody whisper, preach right now. <laughs> I remember one time, it was really an embarrassing moment. I went to this coffee shop on 20 Columbia Place, Brooklyn Heights. And I went there because uh, a young kid that used to be in my youth group became a manager there and eventually actually became owner of the place, part owner. 
really, really proud of this young man. Um, and now it's a restaurant that actually just won a Michelin star. And so, yeah, Clover Hill. If you go there, tell them Chris sent you. Um, but this was before it became the restaurant. I was there getting coffee, and I get to the door. And at the bar, ordering coffee, was the guy who plays Toby at the office. I love the fact. Did you hear that? So people lost their breath right now. This is not coordinated. They don't know, I'm, they don't know what I'm going to say next. This is a live moment, people. And I'm at the door, and I lost all decorum, all composure. And out of nowhere, I said, Toby! I just let it out. And I broke the unspoken rule. You're not supposed to do that to famous people. They're constantly being harassed. Uh, I know some friends that are pretty well known, and they stop coming to church. You know why? Because people want to take selfies with them and stuff. Real nonsense stuff. And so I've, I felt terrible. I'm like, ah, why did I do that? But in the moment, I'm like still amazed. Like, this is Toby from the office. And in my mind, I said this sentence. I said, you're my favorite character and my wife's favorite character. We just love you. That's what I said in my mind. But out of my mouth went, Toby, my wife, like literally. And so my man is at the, and he gets startled because here he is. He sees this big dude at the, at the door, like, who's calling my name? And then he, who's saying that I'm their wife? It was a very weird moment. I walked over to, I mean, you would have thought I saw DiCaprio or, you know, Denzel. I mean, he's a cool dude, but he's Toby from the office, you know. Calm down, Chris. I walked over to him, apologized, had a good exchange. I lost my ability to speak in the presence of something awesome. And the crazy thing is, we find ourselves stammering and losing control over things that pale in comparison to the majesty of God to the glory of God, to the wonder of Christ. You know, when you and I pray, we get to encounter the God who created everything we see, everything we touch, the planet we live on, he spoke it into existence. And the same God who saw his creation reject him and push him out of the center and substitute him with lesser, inferior things and yet pursued us, entered into this world, took on flesh, became fully human in order to redeem us and he hung on a cross, was buried, rose from the dead. That God we get to talk to. That God we let, we, we allow him, as crazy as that sounds, we allow him to love us. And yet we read in Acts that at this moment the church was in a state of wonder. Wonder. Because they were seeing these incredible things done by the apostles. 
signs and wonders. They were in a state of marveling as they were watching God do some amazing things through the apostles. And as, I, as we looked at just two passages in the Old Testament, there's so many more, this moment would not have felt out of place or, or out of nowhere, or out of the progression. It would have been absolutely normal to be found in a state of awe in relationship to God. But in particular, it definitely would not have felt out of place or out of order. It would have been a natural expected progression from the apostles and these first followers of Jesus witnessing the life and ministry of Jesus for three and a half years. In the Gospel of John, I love this verse, after 21 chapters, 20 chapters, in the 21st chapter, after he's recording everything he's seen Jesus do and say, he gives us this statement. John 21, verse 25, he said, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. The things that Jesus did that they saw him do. And now they're embodying that. They're disciples. They're following the footsteps of their Messiah. Of course, their community would be marked by amazing, mysterious, supernatural, powerful things. I was recently talking to a New Testament scholar. He's like a legit authority on the New Testament. He's, he's studied the actual manuscripts that were found. And I love how he described miracles. He said, when you see miracles in the life of Jesus, what you're seeing is the fall being undone. Jesus is undoing the fall. The repercussions, the ramifications of sin, how it cascades over all of life, and you see the brokenness of it all. When you read the Gospels and you see Jesus raise someone from the dead or heal someone of leprosy or or heal a man's hand in the temple, uh, he's undoing the fall. And so what did the disciples do? They're continuing what they saw. And they're taking Jesus at his word. John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says this about not only his disciples, but if you read the context, it's about those who would eventually believe through the disciples. It's us. And he says this is what our reality would be. Very truly, John 14, 12, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So what we see in Acts 2 is the apostles are taking Jesus at his word and they're doing the things that they saw him do. And they're doing the works that he said they would do. But it doesn't stop there. If you continue to read the book of Acts, you'll see that at a certain moment, right now, this moment, these are Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what the church consists of right here, Acts chapter 2. Eventually, the church grows to Gentiles, non-Jews, being invited into this community. And we find out after the fact, something that God's been saying all along, but we struggled to interpret it accurately, that God's plan all along was to break down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and create a brand new community. 
And as the gospel spreads in this way, it goes from signs and wonders being done by the apostles to signs and wonders being part of the church. Where everyday believers were were seeing God do supernatural things. Do you know that the person who led Paul the apostle, who prayed with him, we only hear their name once in the New Testament. They were not famous. We don't know what happened afterwards. But we know that they were just praying. An average believer, just praying. And as God, as they were praying, God spoke to them and said, go to Paul, who at that time was named Saul. Pray for him. I've chosen him. Read it. Acts chapter 9. It's an amazing moment because Ananias actually was like, are you sure, Lord? I've heard some crazy things about this guy. The gospel spreads, and more and more people, not just the apostles, in fact, read Romans, read Corinthians, read Thessalonians. You see ample instructions about the people of God being given tools and truths for them to manage this supernatural aspect of their faith, instructed on the gifts of the Spirit, because it had become a part of their life together. And of course, that makes sense. Because if you and I are disciples, that means that you and I are apprentices. We are following a master teacher with the intention to embody and implement everything we see. How many remember during the 80s and 90s that there was these really well-intentioned but really horrible commercials trying to dissuade people to use drugs. You ever seen these commercials? The, the famous one, there was a frying pan, right? And they cracked the egg, said, this is your brain. And then the egg is frying, said, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? That's how the commercial went. And at the end of it, it was like, yeah, I got a lot of questions. <laughs> there was this one and this one, this one got to me. If I watched it now, it would really get to me. Now as a parent, there's a young kid, and he's using drugs in the corner of, like, the house. And the dad breaks into the room, and he's like, what are you doing? And he catches the kid doing drugs. And the kid says, I learned it from watching you. It's a, oh, heart-wrenching. If you're a parent, and have you ever seen your kid do something that they watch you do, and you're like, hey, don't do that. It's like, hey, I learned it from watching you. You're like, don't do it anyway. Um, when it comes to being a disciple, we very much say the same thing. I learned it from watching you. I watched you, Jesus. This is why we pray the way we pray, and we believe what we believe, and we embody the things we embody. It's not arbitrary. It's we are, it's the logical extension of us being full apprentices to do what he calls us to do. But let's be grounded and tethered because what we understand from scripture is that the kingdom of God is here at hand. It's present, but it's not fully here. Its full arrival comes in the consummation of all things. It's, I know I'm throwing like big theological language. One day we'll unpack that. 
What's meant by all that? Is that the reason why Jesus did the miracles that he did was because it was a sign. It, was, it, it drew people's attention to realize there is another reality here. There, the, the reign of God is present. And so what's broken in this world doesn't have to remain in its brokenness. It can be healed. It can be transformed because there's an authority above it. And in very many ways, that's what informs our orientation towards speaking up on issues of justice and addressing brokenness in this world. We do so because we say it doesn't have to be this way. There's another kingdom that's here, that's present, that can transform. However, even though the kingdom is at hand and God does amazing things and we see the supernatural reality of God, it's not fully here. And so what does that mean? That means that not everyone gets healed. They will eventually be healed, but not everyone gets healed. Not every moment of justice happens on this side of eternity. It's here, but not fully. But because it's here, we choose to live under the reality of that. We choose as a community to say, that is going to influence how we live out our faith, how we practice the way of Jesus. Is going to have these elements, these truths in it that are supernatural, that are mysterious, that confront our modern assumptions, that are humbling. We'll see many amazing things happen because the kingdom is here. And they saw many amazing things happen. They were in a place and a state of awe. You know, there's this expression that captures one of the deep values of our denomination. We're part of the Vineyard denomination. Uh, if you'd like more information on that, be happy to supply that to you. Um, it's, an, it's a really great family of churches, and one of their core values can be expressed in this concept, this idea that they say often. It's that we believe we're to be naturally supernatural. Naturally supernatural. What does that mean? That means we believe that God is real, that his presence is accessible, that he does supernatural things in our day and age, that we can pray for the sick, that we can believe that God speaks to us, that the gifts of the Spirit are a present reality, but we believe those things in the most natural way. We don't try to hype it. We don't try to do anything extra to it. We're normal, natural people that live in this reality of the supernatural kingdom of God that is present, that's real, that just induces awe in us. And in our church, we don't seek experiences. We're not seeking out the gifts of the Spirit. We're seeking Jesus. And as we seek Jesus, he gives these things. And so we don't make an idolatry of the experience. Or, and we pursue these things never in a way that we put those things above Scripture. Scripture has the final authority. It's the final arbiter of what's true for us. Not a prophetic word. But I realize this might be a good moment to let some folks know of some of the ways that we embody these things. We recently had a conversation with someone who's been visiting our church for a little bit. 
And it was a really great conversation. Uh, and they shared, you know, we, we really love the community. We love the worship. Um, we love our kids feel welcomed here. Uh, the messages really speak to us. It was like, but there's one thing. Can I have, I have a question about? And they said it really respectfully, very curious. Like, that moment in the service where you share prayer words, can you explain that to me? I'm new to it. I'm open. And I realized that for some of us, you just are kindly like saying, I trust these leaders. I don't know what's happening right now, but, you know, they don't feel crazy. This feels, oh, okay. And, and you just go with it. Let me pull the curtains back and let you know what happens. So every Sunday before the service happens, folks that are part of the prayer team, we gather. And we gather downstairs and we pray and we seek God and we listen to see if God might speak to us on behalf of the church. And now on any typical Sunday, we typically have around like six to eight words that we all kind of share. We'll all go around like, what did you sense? What do you sense? And we're writing it down. But if you notice, on any given Sunday, we only share about two or three from up front. Why is that? Because we only share the words that we all sense confirmation around. So a lot of Sundays, what happens is somebody's praying, and they got a sense or a scripture or an image about this, and then all of a sudden, the next person starts sharing. They haven't been able to compare notes. It's all happening right there live. It's the same thing in different ways, but the same thing. So why we do that? Because there's a scriptural uh, uh, principle that says, let every matter be established with two or three witnesses. And so we just don't share things up front for the sake of sharing it. We share things that we feel a sense of peace and confirmation that God is saying this. But I'll give you another layer to it. The person who leads our prayer team is Denise's husband, Khan. And that's his claim to fame. He's Denise's husband. Um, <laughs> but what you may not know about Khan, he has a Ph.D., and he does cancer research. The man's a scientist. And in fact, if you, you should ask him one day to tell you the story of how he came to faith. Because it it's powerful. Scientists are designed to be skeptical. To not just believe anything. They dig in. So you know what Khan does in the part of the prayer team? He takes all those words and he puts them into a spreadsheet. Good scientist. And after each service, he checks in with the folks that are praying, and he says, did anyone respond to these words? And he tracks it. I remember the first year we did this, that he tracked it, he shared the data with me. He said, Chris, we have an 82.5 response rate. That means that 82.5 of the time, when words are shared, people say, oh, I think, I believe that's me. And they would go and get prayer. And then he shared, he said, we have seven Dr. Bonafide healings. Said, so as a scientist, I won't allow myself to say more than seven. There's a few that some would say, definitely a miracle, but somebody could argue these. Seven of them, ironclad. And you know who did all that praying? Not me. Not Pastor Denise. It was the members of our church. No pastors, no titles, but children of God that know God, that believe. 
what Scripture tells us is worth believing and possible to believe. Why do we do that? I'll be honest. I have some friends in ministry. They respect me. They love me. This part, they're like, ah, I don't know. And trust me, I've seen enough abuses and enough weird stuff happen around this stuff that for a long time I was like, eh, I don't know if I want that part of our church. But I had to repent of my arrogance and my desire to control things and realize, yeah, there might be some messes. There might be some things I have to pastor, but it would be all worth it for the sake of us being a community that's grounded in a sense of mystery, of wonder, of awe. I'll tell you one story, and then we'll close. One of these Sundays that we were doing these words, that Sunday I was preparing to preach a message that I was a little stressed about. It was a message about human sexuality. And if you know, in our day and age, that's not an easy conversation to have. And I was stressed because I know in our church, there's folks that have same-sex attraction. There's folks that have all sorts of questions. And I knew that it was going to be challenging to hear about the Christian sexual ethic and what the scriptures say about this. Regardless of how loving, how welcoming, the challenge of scripture is the challenge of scripture. And so I'm a little stressed that Sunday just praying, God, because here's the thing. I'm not afraid of people being offended by the gospel. But I don't want to be needlessly offensive. And that's the problem. Most people have never been offended by the gospel. They've been offended by the church, by the way we preach and do things. And so that Sunday I was feeling stressed. And, And if you ever hear the message, we don't, like, we challenge everybody. If you're heterosexual, if you have same sex attraction, guess what? Jesus is challenging everybody that everybody's bodies belong to him. Everybody has to give an account to him. And so it, we, everybody's welcomed, but no one should feel comfortable if Jesus is talking to all of us. None of us should feel comfortable. None of us have some edge. I talk to heterosexuals sometimes like as if they have less need of sanctification, the arrogance. I digress. I'm, I'm getting ready to preach. So I'm a little, so that Sunday, I'll be honest, I see people, I'm greeting them, but I wasn't like fully there. So much so that when the words were shared, I honestly didn't really pay attention. Like some of y'all, but anyway. And so, (laughs) so the words were shared. And out of nowhere, this woman comes up to me that I've I've met. I met with her a couple weeks before, and I really knew her friend who brought her to church. And she came to me like aggressive, said, did you tell them? I was like, what? It was like during the greeting time. She was like, did you tell them? I was like, I'm really sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? She was like, did you tell them about my father? And then I remembered the word. I was like, I was in a state of awe. Right? I was like, oh, my gosh. I wasn't in the prayer room that morning. I didn't know she was coming. And one of the words were, there's a woman here whose dad's health is really struggling. And you feel like you're at the edge of your rope, the end of your rope. And God wants to meet you. When I connected the dots, that was her exact situation. She wasn't a believer. She came to church like 
graciously because her friend invited her. And she looked amazed. And that Sunday, for the first time, she received prayer. And even during the pandemic, we kept in touch, and God's still doing some things in her life. I could tell you story after story after story of how God meets us as a community in these supernatural, awe-inducing ways. As the worship team comes forward, what would it look like for us to experience a profound recovery of awe? What would it look like? Imagine if every single one of us in this community, however different we are and diverse we are, if there was a common thread that ran through all of our lives and that we were all in this collective state of awe toward God, in awe of the cross, in awe of his redemptive love, in awe of this Jesus that we sing to and worship and we serve, in awe of the things that he alone does that have no match, no comparison. The more I study about Jesus and, and the more confident I become that we have not found ourselves to be believing in some fable, some, some nice tale. We are in the presence of a living God when we come and worship in his name and we allow his grace to transform our lives. This is not some fable. It's not some fairy tale. He is risen. He is alive and he does supernatural things. Sometimes things happen. He's alive. He's present. Our faith wasn't designed to be lived out purely from an intellectual level. Obedience doesn't work that way. You and I are never going to fully obey if we think that it's just because we mentally agree to a doctrine or a truth. You have to be caught in a state of awe wonder. Can I invite us to stand? If you feel comfortable doing so, could I invite you to raise your hands? study the Old Testament, the posture of prayer often was to stand and to raise your hands. The physical posture of your body, communicating the inward posture of your heart. I'm here to receive. I'm here to surrender. I'm here to acknowledge that you're bigger than me. And as we worship in these next few moments, the prayer team is in the back and they would love to pray with you regarding the words that were shared earlier or anything that you need prayer for. I would love to pray with you. Let's worship. Let's respond. Let's cry out to God for a recovery of all, a recovery of wonder.